0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Asking for a Parent podcast. It's me, Dr. Coleman Octor, and it's an absolute pleasure to get a chance to come back and chat to you again. I know we start every podcast by saying this, but I genuinely do believe it. Thank you very much to everybody who has downloaded, listened, and shared the episode so far. We are really overwhelmed, and and this has far exceeded any of our expectations around the reach that this podcast would get. So thank you for that, and also thank you for people who are giving us feedback in terms of uh, maybe some of the things that you've taken on board, and, and maybe made some changes at home, and it's really lovely to get those pieces of, I suppose, updates on how things have maybe little improved a little bit for you guys at home. That's wonderful, and so keep those coming in to the askingforaparent@gmail.com email or through the Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages. And we have uh, one of the people on Twitter had actually mentioned during the week that the podcast was like listening to a conversation over a coffee and picking up some kind of tips and advice along the way. And that's exactly the approach that we were going for. This is not a space for luxury, preachy experiences of how you're getting it all wrong. It's really to just try and pick up some practical advice and actually to remind ourselves that we're doing a really good job. And in actual fact, you know, this is tough stuff. And, and in fact, we're doing okay. Um, and we've had some great guests so far. We've had Karen Coster, Alison Curtis, and Marae Ronan. And we've had wonderful conversations from a mother's perspective. And this week's episode is a little bit different. My guest this week is a dad and so he's going to give us some of his perspective on parenting from his point of view. Now some of the topics that come up in the conversation over the the chat today involve some topics that may be difficult for some people. We talk about the loss of a child and issues around bereavement and grief and we just want to warn you before listening to it that there is that content that comes up but it's mixed in with some really nice light and engaging and humorous conversation which I really enjoyed taking part in, and I really hope you enjoy listening to. Anyway, it gives me great pleasure to introduce my guest on this week's episode of Asking For A Parent podcast. I met this person some years ago when we were working in a pop-up mental health radio show in St. Patrick's Hospitals for the Walk In My Shoes, WIMS-FM campaign. Over the time I got to know him, I found him to be one of the most funny and most knowledgeable people I've ever met. As a novice to the world of radio, he showed tremendous patience and generosity, as he did his best to show me the ropes and give me lots of sound advice that I still use today. And for many of those who don't know who he is, the chances are that more women have woken up to this man whispering in their ear than any other person in the country. And the reason for this is that my guest on the Asking for a Parent podcast this week is the host of RTE Radio One's early morning show, Rising Time. It is, of course, Mr. Shea Byrne. Shay, how are you? I'm fine, Colman. Thanks for asking me to be with you on the podcast today. Oh, listen, it's brilliant. And thanks for giving me the time. So. How are you coping at the moment? Uh, just to situate our listeners, we're in the mid of midterm, so we're kind of early into lockdown too. How's it all been for you in these strange times, Shay? How are you keeping?
1: I suppose going back to March, when the first lockdown came, for everybody, it was a shock and it was a shock for me too. I, I Because I work in media and I work in RTE, which would be out at the front of the news gathering system, we had some prior knowledge here and there of things that might happen and made sure we had news crews in certain parts. So, I could see the story unfolding. I review seven papers every morning. I could see the statistics changing if you're watching what was happening. Obviously, we're a lot, all a lot more educated now and how to read those signs, but back in March, it was it was quite the shock. I mean, the kids are the same as when they went down to school. When I went to school in 1980, Splash, in St. David's in Artane, when we got to school and said the heating was broken, that's the kind of way they came home. They ran home, I'm like the heating's broken. There's a pandemic, hooray. So, (laughs) of (laughs) course, the implications of it were there was happiness. But I have to say, when I remember sitting down with them all, all gathered in the front room to listen to, uh, on at the time, Leo Varadkar and his announcement. And it was, I felt emotional. I could feel the emotion coming up inside me because I knew that this was a moment in history. And I knew that the kids were a little bit, not a little bit, but of course, being younger children, they were, not younger children, because I'll give you their ages now in a second, but they were, they were a little bit oblivious to what the implications of it were and and really in march the the outlook was pretty dire and the reason we had to go to lockdown was because of impending doom as it seemed now yeah katie is 12 jack is 15 and holly is 17 so you have a different range of understanding the older two will give the younger one a little bit of perspective as well so she's not the oldest trying to figure it out she's got the others but as the five of us sat around I did get a a sense and it it took my breath away. You could feel that emotion as you might at a funeral or you might at a wedding or something where you feel the the height of emotion. That's how I felt. So as I say, the kids thought it was a snow day, that school was cancelled. They were delighted. I then continued to work in RTE as I do today. I worked every day, five days a week. And it was strange and it was eerie being on the roads on my own, stopping at checkpoints Every few minutes, depending on which way you were going, because you were in the heart of Dublin on the main routes. As I traversed two main routes, uh, you were being stopped and explaining where you were going. It really had a sense of something completely outside my experience. So that was the start of March. And obviously, we've continued and we've gone through uh, good times and bad times. And, And a few weeks, a week and a half ago now, as we're in the middle of midterm, that lockdown came again. And I remember saying on the radio. That morning, I'm a little bit overwhelmed because it was for the third or fourth time we'd sat around the television and listened to Antishak Michal Martin. This time, give an address to the nation and say, "Look, we're you know we're heading for real trouble here. So here are the steps we have to take." So I'm I'm okay. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a cheerful person, as you know, I'm an upbeat person. But th- there are certain days and certain momentous days, and when the illness came to my family, not to my my immediate family or my mother, but uh, one of one of my family members and and her family. That was a bit of a shock as well. That was about four weeks ago. So, so there's been ups and downs, but you know, I'm kind of trying to put my best foot forward.
0: And I think you're right. I mean, there was a kind of a, a Churchill moment as we all cowered around the TV, especially for that first announcement. And it kind of, it made the thing a little bit real, didn't it, in terms of that. And again, I'm talking to a lot of people who are kind of, who are trusted with kind of keeping the spirits up of the nation in terms of these times. And there's a struggle in that because everyone is struggling with all the things that we're managing. But from a parent's point of view, I mean, you've described, you have three children, there, are 12, 15 and 17. How has that been for them? I mean, with the lockdown and the schools closing and obviously there's homeschooling bits and then they're returning to school, hand washing, and... <laughs>
1: homeschooling, hello, hello. Sorry,
0: homeschooling. <laughs> it was this thing that people were talking about over May last year, but how are they managing?
1: I tell you, look, there's kind of categories of things that they have missed out on. There are things that I, I look for positives in a kind of a mindful way. I try to see the positives and park some of the very negative things and look at what are the positive things I can see. So the negative things were that they missed out on a lot, particularly Holly, who was in transition year uh, last school terms. She was in transition year and had all the, these plans that was blown away, and she and that never she'll never get that back. So that's a that's a year that's something she really missed for the first time. I'd blackmailed, threatened, and harassed two of them to go to the Guelph. And they were going and all was, and they're going to Kalash the Lurgan, and it was very great excitement because they're really musical kids. And then that was knocked on the head. So that was something, although they didn't know what they'd missed, I knew what they'd missed because for me, I was trying to find maybe an experience for them that would be coming of age based on the kind of kids they are. This would give them a little bit of independence and something to do themselves. So that's gone. You know, birthdays, parties, trips, holidays, we were supposed to, we'd saved for a year, they'd saved to go to Lisbon on our holidays. And, and as the months went on, that became something that wasn't going to happen. So there was those those kind of categories of lists. And then there was more intangible things that were the, the slight sense of fear. Each child deals with it differently. And to be aware of that and trying to give enough attention to the person who is struggling a little bit with it, who maybe out of them, would have given specifics about them, maybe wouldn't be as social or maybe well adjusted. One of them will will sit on on a PlayStation or a, a Zoom call and chat all day and be, you know, be happy and not really be upset they miss something where someone is looking for friends and looking for social activity. So there's kind of columns of things for me that they've missed.
0: And I think you're hitting a really important point there about the windows of opportunity that have been missed. And mean, you mentioned it, like transition year, you only get one shot at that. And I think we can be a little bit dismissive as adults around, you know, oh, so you missed out on your leave and start holiday or you missed out on your debs or whatever, but for young people, that is a big deal. And I speak to them all the time. And I think they are feeling the pinch of that in terms of the loss. And was your youngest, did she start in primary school now or secondary school now? Did she miss the, the ending to sixth class?
1: Yeah, actually, I, I forgot to say that. She missed the ending of sixth class. She missed her confirmation uh, coming from a Catholic household. She missed her confirmation, which was, a, again, another massive junction. She didn't get to say goodbye she didn't have all that fun of being the you know that year of being the head of the primary school where they get all the good jobs they miss school because they go on trips and they you know they go out to do confirmation stuff so she she definitely missed it and she really felt that she really yeah. felt and there's
0: their a... A group i really felt for i really yeah. do i mean i think we focus a lot on the leaving certain and rightly so and but that sixth class group did miss out on the kind of ceremonial goodbye of that part of their life and for me, it's the things that
1: they can never do again. They can probably, hopefully, maybe go to the Guiltuck again, but sixth class transition year things they'll never get back. And there was one very poignant day—the day the I actually feel a bit choked up speaking about it—but <laughs> um, the day they were supposed to go for confirmation, um, she went up and put her dress on. Okay, and she'd said to me, "Oh, I might put my dress on. We might do something." I was like, of "Course, we we'll go for a meal." And and I think I actually think when when that that day there was nothing open and we couldn't go. But well, we had hoped to. So we gave her a few bob and got a takeaway, the usual things from can. She's she's mad for Indian food. But I I can remember being quite emotional I'm, I'm quite emotional remembering it now. Mm. That was a real, a real sad day. And I think you're trying to do material things with her, you're trying to give her, you know, money and you're trying to say, look, it'll be okay, and then we'll do it again, and your confirmation will happen again. And it's been subsequently cancelled a couple of times. So we don't know when that's when that's going to happen. So yeah, that was very very sad. And when they're when they're small like that, when they're small to me at twelve, she's a wisp of a thing as well. You could see how upset she was by it.
0: Mm. Yeah, when you were talking there, I was thinking, "She's give me your address. I'm going to send that kid fifty quid. You know, it's just to try and you know to <laughs> make it better."
1: More <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> But
0: um. No, and uh, yeah, look, there's been loads of losses and difficulties for, for every everybody through this. And I think some probably have been hit more than others in, th- in terms of milestone significance and all that sort of stuff. It, it, what we're saying to most guests here, Shay, is that, you know, whatever we learn from parenting manuals or where we read this or listen to this, that it tends to be our own experience of growing up that really has the most impact on our value system around being a parent and what we try to achieve in that time. We've met a lot of times. I'm not so sure I have a good sense of, I know your career has been, you know, from the point of view, you've, you've had lots of different jobs and things over your time, but what was it like when you were growing up, when you were in, in that childhood, teenage years? What was life like for you?
1: But certain, certainly, I mean, I'm, I'm the second youngest of five. So the, the, there's a 14-year age gap between the oldest and the youngest. And I, I often think about my parents where I'm, when I'm in the position now, because actually, again, my youngest would be my age when I was my dad's age, if that makes sense. The gap between my daughter and i is the same as my dad and i so i get a gives me a little bit of perspective is i look at her now and i think what he must have saw what he, when he saw in those days so my mum and dad my dad's dead about 20 years and um, my mum's 84 she's still going strong but it was a very traditional relationship dad went to work mum was at home she managed the house looked after us and impeccably lots of love lots of generosity my dad a little more absent maybe you know he had his friends he had his uh, football club Nothing unusual in those days. I want to say we weren't lacking in material things, and we certainly weren't lacking in love. Not, not very demonstrative. That would have been again. That would have been normal. But I don't see it as a problem. as I, As I became older, I know people say, "Oh, my dad never." I, I saw. I heard a great quote. It said, I, "I went home for Christmas this year. It was very awkward. I made eye contact with my father. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't like that. Like he was friendly, and he was like he was the disciplinarian." You know, there was a, an old American TV series, Wait Till Your Father Gets Home. So we had that, you know, Well, my mother would lose it with us. My mother was great. She'd lose it with us because we we're watching the television. And, you know, we didn't do anything she'd asked us to do. And then the television was on again. So she'd come with the bread knife and she'd cut the plug off the television. <laughs> <laughs> so this would happen. It's till Your Father Gets Home. And then my father would come home, whatever time, six, seven o'clock. When I was growing up, he had his own business. So he was later and later than he would have been in previous years. <laughs> and he'd go to say, turn on the news. And i said, oh, well, mum, cut the plug off the telly. And he wouldn't really be angry with us. But he'd be like, oh, for f- sake, OK, get me a screwdriver. And you'd have to put the Like it was a regular occurrence to put the plug back on the television. <laughs> so, you up
0: know, and up have this mother... half lead <laughs> from all the different <laughs> plugs that went on it.
1: And my mother, like she's like I mean, I can remember getting a couple of slaps, but nothing again that I think of was anything vicious or, or you know, more frustration than anything else. Like she would break kitchen implements off the side of the counter in in rhythm. So she would say, she was like, "I am going to kill you, like a darling, and break the wooden spoon or break the steak knife or whatever." So, so look, my my memory is. My memory is actually quite interesting because, I again, thinking of my own uh, children, uh, there's not a massive gap, it's five years between them, that my dad must have changed as a parent as he went through that 12 years in the difference when my sister was born to the last child being born. So having a 12-year-old and having a baby right through to having a 10-year-old and having a 22-year-old in the same house. And I think... Uh, my, like my older two siblings would always say, oh, you've had it very good because, you know, you had, there was money when you came. I mean, we weren't living in we were living in a three bed semi. It was normal life. But they always talk about that. So I, I kind of reflect that back to my own parenting. So it's funny that you should mention that. I hadn't heard that before, really, that your own parental, the way you were reared might reflect. I mean, I thought that. But in some ways I go again, I, I go the opposite way to some of the things that, that I re- remember about my childhood not that they were particularly negative but i said i i don't want to do that I, I i want to do this i want to do it this way because when i think parenting i think about some uh, one of the things I, I i often wonder am i not giving them enough ambition that's something i think about am i not telling them and giving them the benefit of saying you know you must do this and i want you to be here and when you come home at 65 percent, i want to know why you didn't get 65 percent. and it, but my, i keep defaulting back to this thing you know actually they're very happy Particularly this year, Mm. they're quite they're quite well adjusted, and they're quite you know they're social enough, not massively social, but they're social enough. And then I'm going, no, no, I need to like I need to I need to you know I need to be forcing them towards university. (laughs) And and then someone say, no, naturally they will naturally. So so sometimes I wonder, am I not
0: giving them enough uh, ambition? If I can ask you a question, follow it on from that. What was the the role of ambition when you were growing up? It's an interesting question because
1: uh, my dad always wanted when we had conversations you know I was I was probably an above average student I don't wanna, I wasn't a, a spectacular student but I was good I was very socially aware very good with words got on well with the teachers you know uh, could was working from an early age with my dad uh, so very good in adult situations. so you could kind of get by with that strong personality and positive personality so like college was mentioned but for my older three siblings, probably because my parents didn't go to college, there was no push to go to college. So I kind of brought that up. And in my class in in secondary school, only three people would have went to university out of 25. That was back in 1990. And people would have went on and done, have done very well in different types of courses. People went dire- directly to work. And I have to compliment St. David's and Artane. They had a PLC course, which was only reasonably new when I was leaving, where they, one of the teachers and Mr. Ward and a couple of other teachers that got together and they'd organized this business course. And what we didn't realize was that these teachers had great connections with insurance companies, pensions companies. And what they were doing was anybody who came on the course who showed any potential, they never finished the course because they were fired off to work in Irish life and in Irish pensions and stuff. And and people went on to be very senior and still are very senior in those companies. So, so there was a different kind of a vibe in some ways. One person went on to be an architect. Some people are, are, (laughs) some people are doing different jobs, some behind bars, but you know, there's, (laughs) they'll know who they are. Um, But There were just different types. So it wasn't particularly in the air and in where I'm from, and in my family background, it wasn't particularly a big thing. But my dad, my dad was very open to it. And, and a great thing he used to do to do with my own kids now is I'd walk them through the universities. So my dad had decorated the chapel in Trinity College. Uh, it was an ecumenical matter. And he uh, he had varnished it and painted it. So we used to go in and look at that and he'd say, you know, you could come here someday. But not without, because he didn't really have a knowledge of the co- of the college system. He couldn't tell me anything about points. He didn't know anything about courses. He didn't. He didn't make a massive attempt to know. He, he seemed I like knew, so I was able to work with it. But I do funny thing. I do with my kids is I do walk them through UCD and I walk them through TCD. And if we're in Galway or Cork, when we are again, I, I give them that. Just say, look, you know the atmosphere here is fab. They have great sports facilities. They have a musical society. They have this. They have that. This is a great place to be. But ambition. I wouldn't say we were pushed. I probably brought it upon myself.
0: And in terms of, am I right in saying, Shay, you got into your current role quite late in your life? In terms of media, but well, you that know I'm something... only twenty-five, don't you? Oh yeah, but but a bit twenty-three when you just <laughs> <Did you> start. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, I did. I did. My my very quickly career was. Uh, I left school. I went to study management accountancy in Carlo. I didn't like that. I went into uh, uh, sales business uh, for a little while, and then my dad had had bought into a transport company. I went to work in that bit of admin, bit of driving, really hated that, absolutely hated that. So I ended up going to work for a mobile phone company. Then I went to work for a video company, and then my dad had sold on the transport company and had been kind of started to slow down a little bit back in the mid 90s, about 96. And his painting and decorating company was still going. He asked me, would I come back and help him with that, which I did, I came back with great ambitions to make it bigger and better and work very hard at it, which I did. But I don't think I was the best businessman. We were bad painters, but I wasn't the best businessman. At that same time, in a simultaneous path, I got involved in the musicals, musical society scene and started to do that. A couple of the guys at the musical society started an events business. I started doing a bit of that at the side, at weekends, at nights. Really liked that. Really like that. While painting, did a bit of MC work, a bit of DJ work, whatever was needed. I kind of went, oh, I, I, I kind of really like this. And then I just, it, 2005, my dad passed away in 2000. And I kept going with the painting business. Um, in 2005, I saw an ad for it in the paper for RTE for Voices for Continuity. I applied for that, got a training course, did the training course, passed the training course, and then went on air in early 2006 and uh, had been doing that. 2007, got a, a full-time job, sold the painting company, and in 2010, got my own show. And I've been on that ever since. So that's that's kind of a potted history of what happened um, uh, with the, the career.
0: But isn't that a really colorful view of ambition? Do you know what I mean? From the point of view of, I think there is a narrow view that we have to go to university and we have to do courses and that's the only way we can get through. And I'm just thinking about you with that PLC course. I mean, what a wonderful thing if that existed now for people who are not, you know, academically focused, you know, to give, to accommodate different way of learning. You know what I mean? And like, even going back to, to my experience of that, it was like, you could go to the bank or you go into insurance, you could now it's just all everything's through college if you want to be a mechanic you have to go to college you know so yeah. the idea that i think there is a kind of a narrow focus but your idea of how you came to be was about following the things that you enjoyed and the passions and you know i think if you're to hand anything over in terms of ambition to your children it is about that as well but it's come up so many times in the podcast in the episodes that we recorded about how do you get that right how do you and you can't get it right with teenagers because if you say I want you to do your best, they'll say you're putting me under pressure. And if you say, uh, we don't care what you get, once you're happy, they're going to say, you just don't believe in me, you know? So (laughs) there isn't, and I wish I had the answer to that one, but I think it is about supporting them to use what they can without putting pressure. And it's come up again and again, that the pressure of potential, do you know what I mean? The child who shows potential can kind of have a kind of an allergic reaction to that word because they interpret it as pressure. But it is interesting that, In a a world where we have this tyranny of choice, of options, Uh, I'd say in the last five years, most teenagers are directionless in regards to what they want to do. Almost the choice has led to more confusion. But there's a lovely part of your story, Shay, which is about you find your way. You follow something and it leads you there. And it doesn't have to be points and academics and it doesn't have to be family businesses and legacies. It's about where you're and head takes you and, and again when you start talking about that musical scene your voice changed and you became quite passionate about that it was clearly a, a bit of a game changer for you was it
1: it certainly was i i, I met my wife there uh, i met some lifelong friends i was able to give a little bit of expression to an artistic side which i kind of pushed away before actually goes back to my mum and dad as well they were into musicals so we used, used to watch MGM musicals on a Saturday or Sunday in the morning on the television, and we had those albums as well. So there was a, a little bit of that. My dad would sing, my mother could sing. It was that kind of thing. But I try to find with the kids as best I can and say, look, you'll be fine. If you don't make it here, you'll do it there. If you don't make it here, you'll make it there. You'll make it anywhere. It's up to you. Sorry. Uh, but <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the 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 thing about it is society, I feel society has made their choices narrow in terms of they have to go to college their the route to apprenticeships isn't seen as being although it's you know there's great success in apprenticeships and great training in apprenticeships uh, it's not seen as something that you say well, that really want our child oh they only got an apprenticeship or they only went to a technical college or they only went here or they only went there there's that little bit of societal pressure which I'm trying to uh not be influenced by
0: mm. And Shay, from the point of view of your career has taken a turn in recent years. And I know you have a funeral celebrant. Is that the right title or how is that?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's the story of that is, again, through music and through uh, entertainment. A, a, a friend of mine I'd known for many years and we were doing a show together in the board. Gosh, and he was working with Santa Um, just in case anybody's listening. He was working with Santa and I was it was the snowman show and Shay, another Shay, Good friend of mine and we were having we were sharing a dressing room and in between shows we we're chatting about his work and he is a managing director of an undertaking firm and you know there's always great curiosity to people who work in in those kind of, people want to know about the radio i said undertaking what do you do and he said to me you know something i was thinking you'd make a great funeral celebrant and of course i said but we talked about it and we we discussed it and i thought okay he said some of the qualities he thought I had that might lead me to be a good celebrant um and so I said okay look let's let's explore it essentially and without going into too many details uh the bore that di- bore you I I've started being a funeral celebrant about four years ago but really got got busier in the last two years it's been I've, I've done a lot of reading I did a training course which have to be honest didn't really equip me for the job but some of the skills I had learned working in RTE speaking to people Getting their stories, getting it down on paper. When I worked with Ryan Tuberty and Derek Mooney, and I worked on the Pat Kenny Show, one of the jobs you do is um, you you talk to the contributors, you get their story, you write it down, you brief the presenter on what that might be. So uh, that that kind of getting the story from people and speaking to people and people in times of crisis and in times of need, as well on the radio, we had some really tough stories that we covered. Those qualities and those that bit of training really
0: came to the fore in, in fueler and salience. And in terms of the, um, obviously the the theme of grief and loss is a difficult one, but when you're there, a, a very fresh and raw part of the loss experience, how, how do you manage that or how, do, how has that been for you? I,
1: I, I would say to people, I cry a lot easier since my dad died. It, it was like when my dad died, I'm doing it now, I can feel it now, it opened a little door somewhere. And my emotions came to the surface, and I've never been able to suppress them back down again. So you'd say, how does that make you a funeral celebrant? But in some ways, it, it, it's in, in, I have empathy. Like I have some shared experience with people who've lost somebody. So I've got to you've got to suppress that. And when you're at a funeral service and something grabs you, you've to be professional. It's very important. And um, because it's their grief, it's their moment. It's not about you crying up at the, the thing. But you can do it afterwards. And that's what I do. I take it with me and I, I think about it afterwards and whatever comes, comes. I had an experience recently, very recently, with a, a couple who'd been bereaved with a baby who had been born uh, essentially very prematurely and to conduct the funeral for, the, for a little baby who was 23 weeks. So that was difficult and there was complications, medical complications, so some time had passed. So dealing with a young couple, younger than me, probably possibly 15, 20 years younger than me, uh, in their grief, first child, that was difficult because we'd lost a baby, we think somewhere between 12 and 14 weeks in this carriage. Uh, and we we like Linda myself, we'd had a particularly we'd had a hard time medically with it. It was on St. Stephen's Day, you know, you arrived at the maternity hospital, they're kind of looking at you. You know, I wouldn't go into details and upsetting anybody. Anybody who's been through it knows how upsetting it is and still upsetting. But I said to that, I said to that couple, when I spoke to them, I said, look, I'm very sorry for your loss. This baby was very important, very important part of the world, you know, made a contribution to the world. You don't realize yet what that might be. But I, I can tell you from a bit of my own experience that and I said, and then once I said that, the person I was speaking to said, oh, did you have a similar experience? So they, I hadn't I haven't, hadn't thrown it at them, but I offered the opening that they might talk about it. So we discussed both cases very different cases but 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 similar experiences we I discussed with dad and with mom The, the um you know the, again different experiences um but it was interesting because it brought something up because i told the kids then at the weekend i was going to do a funeral for a little baby which again the kids you know the, around the whole funeral thing they they're, they're, they're kind of got used to it now but we had told them a, a number of years ago i think approximately four or five years ago we'd said look I think Linda had, I, Linda didn't tell me she was going to do it, but I think it just came naturally in a conversation. You know, Holly would have been mid-teens uh, or early teens and the others were a bit younger and the, the information would have filtered down. And actually what what had been a concern to me was that we were going to speak because we had a remains, um, you know, and we have a burial plot. Um so we did the whole, we had a fabulous priest who was a great help to us at the time, prepared a service, and we never told them that story. And I was trepidatious about it. I said, "You know, when when do you tell them?" And that's that's a question I, I still don't know the answer to. That if it hadn't come out naturally, like, do do people make a decision to tell those stories to their children?
0: I think the the communication of loss, or and it's not. I don't mean this. In a, the communication of a secret, and it's not a secret, but from the point no, of view, like, something that's that has to be revealed or disclosed. The timing of that for parents is really challenging because. And again when you have a children of a spread of ages like you have you know, there's a big difference between the 15 year old and the eight year old when you're having that conversation and i would always say you know you need to provide the information at the level that they can manage and so it is about like the child who's approaching teenagers can take a little bit more of the emotionality the concept they can get it a little bit more and when you're delivering that information to somebody older, you have to, do, you have to expect that the grief and loss and the experience might be a little bit more overt or deeper. So you have to be in a position to answer the question that might come back, whereas the younger child might accept it and can easily distract away from it. But that's not to say it didn't have an impact. It's just that they haven't maybe come to terms with being able to articulate it. But one of the things I would say, Shay, is that in children, we see a lot of a thing called maturational grief. So if you lose somebody, and I've worked with lots of children who may have lost mums or close family members when they're very small, and they seem to kind of repair themselves very quickly. But let's imagine then, if a mum dies when the child is eight or nine, when they're 13 or 14, they start to grieve. And it might be, you know, the onset of puberty or where the the role of mum would really be required or whatever that might be. And because there's a gap that has passed in terms of the time, we have an assumption that in some way the pain has been diluted but in actual fact it isn't and we need to be able to to give children the permission to be able to grieve whenever they feel ready to do it because grief is something that occurs when maybe when we least expect it but it may not be immediate and it certainly may not it may be an evolving process and i don't ever believe that a grief and loss conversation is one conversation it is probably a topic that opens up that you return to do you know what I mean and it's like it like you mentioned about when your dad passed away not being able to to close the, the whatever was open at that time it does expand our experiences and for for children loss is huge because it's it's the idea that they're working through all their childhood working on permanency something's going to stay and it's not going to change and so from the point of view of, if you imagine, like even Freud talked about, you know, the here and gone, you know, the peekaboo, you know, so children, that's child child practicing something will go and it will come back. And where death is the part where nothing comes back. It is the permanency. It is really difficult for them to conceptualize and they need, I would see lots of scaffolding over a period of time to come to terms with that, because it's only when the understanding of the significance of the loss Hits home that the loss can be truly felt. Does that make sense? Um, it does. But I I do believe that, and I oftentimes refer to a friend of mine who says, you know, the funeral piece of of loss is where that community is around. It's oftentimes on day four when everyone's gone that you feel the loss. And I think there's something about we do death very well in Ireland. You know, we do we, we pride ourselves on the wake and the celebration of it. I wonder do we do talking about loss as well you know and I, and I know from the point of view of people who have had miscarriages and things like that where there's there is almost a taboo and people don't want to bring it up or they don't want to talk about it if you've yep. lost a child and I think that's an area that yes we are good at the celebratory elements of death and dying but maybe we could get a little bit better at the concept of loss. and talking about that and feeling free to, and I completely get people don't want to pick at scabs. They don't want to upset somebody by bringing it up. But for people who have been bereaved, they would tell, and it's only things that I've heard third hand, they feel a lot of comfort from somebody listening, you know what I mean? Or from uh, sharing a story or a memory or an exchange about the person that has gone, that there's something quite comforting in that. And I wonder if, we need to get better at doing that a little bit. Does that make sense? It does. It absolutely does make sense. And actually the
1: pandemic, in my experience over the last few months, has been very sad for families who can only have, well, it was a 10 at one stage, back to 25 now, and, and was proposed to be 25 mourners at a funeral. Very, very difficult. Very difficult. Your family members standing outside, your family members standing on the streets. There's no, what we would be used to, going to a pub or a restaurant or back to somebody's house, having a chat telling jokes and, and remembering and maybe making contacts for the next few days, maybe renewing old contacts with people we hadn't spoken to and getting comfort from them. So it's very difficult. Families go home alone, three or four people, a funeral home again, socially distanced, not not easy to to have a number of people standing outside the funeral home. So I've seen that. I mean, at, at a baby's funeral, myself and four people in a very mm-hmm. small, in a beautiful chapel actually in Mount Jerome. And I have to give them a compliment there. They have a beautiful little chapel, especially for babies and for children. It's called the Angel's Chapel, but because it's small, it only fits five, six people. So that's very poignant. And I think that that adds a lot to the difficulty for people not being able
0: to share that grief at the moment, at Mm. the moment. And And I I think that at the moment is the important bit, because I do think we're in the new abnormal and we need to kind of realize that this isn't normal. And I attended a funeral myself. Uh, One of my best friend's mum passed away and you know just show like elbow bumping people there was something really unusually gauche and awkward about it from that point of view you just wanted to hug somebody you know and it was interesting when you talk about my mother who's be getting on in years had was watching tg car your friend nathan carter was on there was some sort of (laughs) concert that she was watching there's people dancing around and hugging and all that sort of stuff and she said i wonder will i ever see that again in my lifetime you know yeah and again that kind of moment of time that the longer this goes on the more the new abnormal becomes the normal but i do think for children we need to be able to see that uh, i hope we get back to shaking hands again and hugging again and you know that that doesn't become something that they carry with them you know especially those younger children who are kind of learning these social nuances in a very abnormal time for
1: me the one of the most important things were the kids going back to school now i'm not i'm not going to get involved in infection control and epidemiology but for for their health and and what made me quite emotional and quite happy the first day they went off in their school uniforms i I rushed home from work to see it it seems odd but i was very happy to see them going back because i know that's their social outlet that's activity something to do mind to focus on different things, get lessons, fight with teachers, like all the things that we're supposed to do that, that they weren't doing and didn't have a prospect of doing for a while, suddenly they were back doing them. And you know, I have I have a couple who are have a little bit of schoolitis every now and again and we deal with that as we go. Uh, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, and sometimes we handle it well, and sometimes we don't handle it well. Uh, particularly me as a man, Aah! you know, you're not going to school! Hurrah! So, you know, um, uh, my wife handles it a little bit better. Sometimes, sometimes that's required. Um, but, um, <laughs> the fear of your father, no, don't tell on your father. But I was delighted to see them going back to school, and it's just, it's made such a
0: difference to their lives. Yeah, and again, you're, we're hitting on that, that importance of community. You know, that the collective of and and again, my kids returned to a a cool camp there in August and it just lifted them all. You know, just getting back to something normal, just uh, uh, and we're just close on time here. Say, but the the issue there, just to can I pick you up on the the bit about the the, the schoolitis issue? And I think there's a learning in this oftentimes as parents, the hardest thing I think we can do is establish whether the child is unwilling or unable to do something. Right. But it's so important that we try and get that right. Do you know what I mean? In terms of because if you're allowing the unwilling child, you enable that kind of avoidance, which you said, you know, sometimes you have to. And you're absolutely right. But if you and where you pressured the unable child, you are it's kind of a persecutory experience in some sense. But I do believe that parents out there, there's no blood tests or x-ray for unwilling and unable so we have to kind of find it out as we go and sometimes we have to push to realize actually they're not able to do this we need to change tack or you know when we allow them to kind of have that tummy ache sick day and find out that at 12 o'clock they're absolutely fine and run around outside that we give ourselves a break from that because we can't make that call it's a trial and error process from the point of view of it, the unwillingness or the inability is only reveals itself. It's not something we should know first. But as a parent, I think it's something that people genuinely struggle with. And I think it is, you pick up a good point there that, you know, that is an important part of how we manage and respond to the challenges. And and deciding and some conclusion of an unwillingness or an inability does determine how you should manage it. It does. And and, 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 and what
1: I would say to anybody listening is I I mess up as a parent all the time. And what I've tried to do is, is try to learn from that, put it behind me, and then try and do it again and it's kind of repetition in some ways, sometimes you same situation uh, uh, approaches, and you 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 try to deal with it in the same way. and one of the things that that's come up in the last couple of years is alcohol. you know we're we're seventeen year old we're fifteen year old fifteen year old very interested in alcohol, not trying it, I hope at the moment, but it's my attitude to it. Linda and I both drink. Uh, Hopefully not to excess. Although they may have come down some mornings and seen the odd can after a few people were over and everybody went to bed and left the mess behind, so they know we drink. You know, we try to try to present it in a reasonably healthy way, but something something that needs to be addressed. And I want, on my part, I'm trying to give them what, if there is such a thing, a healthy attitude towards alcohol consumption.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic topic, and and again one that's kind of controversial. I mean. I I don't, first of all, I don't subscribe to the, the, if we let them drink at home, they get this really good, reliable, responsible, it will be, because you're trying to adopt the model of the French or the Italians, and we're just not French or Italian, that's not how a culture we, we, we have in a relationship with alcohol. And so from the point of view, of, I think that's, that's a bit of a futile point in terms of that's how you do it. I don't think that's the way to do it. It is about I suppose, creating a relationship with alcohol that is sensible. And so the the argument that you need to have around why someone needs to delay their alcohol consumption until they're older is a very biological one, because neurologically, they're not able for it and it will do them. You know, there's a, a proven history that it does damage from the point of view of that. And so it's in the same way of, you know, you don't drive a car till you're 18 or, you know, there's a we kind of those rules are there for a reason. I suppose that's the issue. And as an adult, your relationship with alcohol Yes, it is important from the point of view of having a template. You can't like if you can't say to child, you know, you have your porridge and I'll have a packet of crisps, that's just not gonna work. You need to kind of role model that a little bit. But if there's a healthy relationship with it and it's something that's done, that they'll pick up on that too. That's, that this isn't something that you'd use to escape for, from trauma or a way of kind of Dutch courage or how you get away with doing all these things. But what I'd say is if you can hold your child off the experimentation piece as long as possible, you give them the best neurological opportunity and outcome. And it is about, I suppose, mediating the relationship with alcohol. If you go into prohibition, you drive it underground. And so from the point of view of if you can't talk to dad about alcohol, because as soon as I mention it, he'll go, "Ah," then you're not going to be able to have that conversation about how it is. But what we need to do is we need to have more conversations with children than ever before. We're now, you know, things about intimacy, about alcohol, about relationships, all these sorts of things are falling to us to have those conversations because the world's moving quicker and the exposure to this stuff is much more pervasive than ever before. So our role as the adult in the room is to try and step in and mediate that and say, look, this is what you might hear about this, but this is the reality. And that's not about being a killjoy or being dreadfully unpopular. It's about trying to mediate the information and offer some wisdom to them as they embark on the thing and again what i'd say to shay is you can only equip them with the information the skill set and the knowledge and you know the chances are when your child has an opportunity to do something they shouldn't you're not going to be there so you have to be their voice in their head and what i'd say is you know lots of parents say my kids don't listen and i don't have any influence over them all they listen to their friends and they're taken away by internet and social media and new influencers True, but we would still have a huge impact as parents on our children's culture and value system. I can see that when you're talking about the value system of, of ambition and passion and joy. And, you know, I love that message you said about, you know, whatever you have, whatever happens, we've got this. Do you know what I mean? We'll manage it. And I just think, and again, an unusual message to say in a pandemic, but it is the message. We've got this. Do you know what I mean? As a yeah. parent. You you can't guarantee everything's going to go well. You don't have to expect everything to go well, but if it doesn't, you've got this. And I just think, from the point of view, of, and and I'm going back to Shay when we were going into to do those those shows. And I think at one point I was doing one of the shows on my own, and you said to me, "You've got this." Do you know what I mean? You've done it, and you've got it. And it turned out you were right. I got through it, but. um Yeah, no, I just, the reason I wanted you on the show, Shay, is for all those reasons that we've talked about. You just have this wonderfully containing way of seeing the world and you have, your value system is just spot on. And again, I don't know that you sweat the small stuff. Maybe you do, but you certainly, there's been no kind of glamorous side to you. And I don't mean that in a a, a bad way. You you would see people for who they are. And I think the people who, who listen to you on the radio get that. And I think the people who, you reside over their, their funerals will get that as well. And I just really wanted to thank you for coming on and spending time chatting to us about all the things that we've talked about. And as always, Shay, it's been a pleasure.
1: Coleman, thank you very much. Uh, really you. Appreciate
0: it. All the best. Cheers. That was a wonderful Shay Byrne there, and a special word of thanks to Shay for sharing his personal experiences there. That's not often easy on air. And if the content of the conversation did I suppose bring up stuff for you and there's obviously issues around loss. We have been contacted by the Rainbows group who uh, offer a support for bereavement and loss for children. So if you want to get in touch with them at rainbows.ie, there's somebody there who may be able to offer some support and help. But one of the things I think about Shay is that he has that lovely balance between being fun and being serious and it's a quality that I think is really important when you're working as a therapist and working with children and adolescents, it's about having the balance between the fun and the serious. And uh, one person that I used to work with many, many years ago shared a piece of advice with me. and He said, when you're talking to young people and parents, he said, never talk down to them because they come to this with uh, their own experiences and their own expertise. And you know, your role there is to offer advice and support where needs be, but it's also to listen uh, and to respect them. And I think a lot of the conversations we have, especially maybe with the older children and teenagers, there's something to be learned from that. You know, maybe we just have to talk to people uh, and talk with people and really be careful not to talk down to them. And I think it's a habit that sometimes it's hard to keep on top of. But yeah, no, that that was a really enjoyable interview. I really enjoyed that chat. Uh, and my thanks to Shay Byrne for that. And, you know, as if you have any questions, again, just get them into us on gmail.com or through the Twitter, Instagram and Facebook pages. But until next time, take care, stay safe. And bye for now.